Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to the second season of Just Sustainability. In the final part of our conversation, I asked Kathy about her thoughts regarding reframing environmental justice, aka EJ, away from framings emphasizing deficits and disadvantages. This led to a good discussion about the history of the EJ movement, how we might adopt a more asset-oriented approach to EJ, and the need to resist despair with hope and dreams of a more verdant future. I'm going to change track right now, and I'm always really bad at transition, so I'm just going to be like, we're going to take a hard like left turn. Um <laughs> So we've been talking a lot about CBPR, uh, but there's another part of your work that uh, really fascinates me, and I would love to ask you more about that in the, I guess, the second half of this conversation, which is, um, so you had talked about this when you're talking about your ARCA career, where you started off thinking about sort of the problems that folks had to deal with and like sort of disparities that were like harmful to folks. And now you switch to thinking more about like things that make Right, like the good things, right? Like thinking about like the things that make people perform better, make people feel better, increase wellness, right? Like sort of the right. You thought about sort of the negative things in the early part of your career. Now you're thinking more of the positive things coming from nature. So I like to switch tracks to that, right? So like uh, at our last conversation for the Ione thing, I also asked, I mentioned that I want to ask you about like uh, the way environmental justice is often framed historically. I think environmental justice, or I'm just going to say EJ, has been framed in terms of disparities when it comes to uh, exposure to risk and harm. Do you look at like the early publications that people see as being like seminal works in EJ? Do you look at folks like Bob Bullard talking about like, you know, dumping on Dixie, right? Thinking about uh, um, higher risks for black folks living in the South to be exposed to pollution because of uh, siting policy. Um, but I, I, some of the stuff I, of your work that I really like recently is thinking about, you know, like, how do we provide better access to nature as a way to like, you know, encourage better mental health or like better educational outcomes? So like, I want us to see like, how do you, like, what do you think about the way environmental justice is framed and the ways we might better frame environmental justice so that we're not just always thinking about deficits and like removing deficits, but like actually, right. Uh, I don't know, like thinking about, I don't know how to frame it, right? This, I guess, yeah. is why I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally get your question, and I think you're right um, that we we have been pretty deficit focused. I think mm -hmm. it comes from a historical progression of the field um, where mm -hmm. environmental health, you know, became very big. Cuyahoga rivers burning, you know, right. um, Love Canal, you know, those sorts of things. Um, were the the shocking newspaper headlines um, that grabbed attention? The um, you know the the pictures of just you know smog covered mm -hmm. opaque atmosphere. You can't see the skyline. You know those kinds of things. And recognizing that um, those conditions you know exist in some communities much more um, frequently or severely um, than they do in other communities. Mm -hmm. Where your what your zip code is, you know, sort of determines your your risk for those sorts of exposures. So the whole exposure right. science, you know, kind of um, area um, has been super important and was the main focus um, because of some of these really big headline stories. 
Um, And not that those things don't still happen, um, but they're less of a headline shocker, grab your attention, you know, sort of motivator um, than they were before. And I think it's also, you get burned out, you get depressed, you lose hope, um, you become demoralized when all you do is think about how bad it is, or at least how bad it is for some people. I think that, um, I think we have to envision collectively mm-hmm. a more sustainable and more verdant future. We need to mm-hmm. dream, you know, what do the positive characteristics of that end state look like? Mm-hmm. And not just dream the absence of something bad, right? We actually have to say, it looks like this, you know, this is the ideal, the healthy, um, this is where we will be healthy. This is where um, we will uh, be fully functioning. Mm -hmm. Um, What are we working for? Not just what are we working against? So I think to do that, we need to come together and identify what are our common values. And right. we, we made a point at the beginning um, today talking about the kind of more abstract or higher level you get, mm-hmm. the more we're likely to agree. Mm-hmm. Um, we can all agree that certain things are good and certain things are bad. It's how do we achieve that, that, you know, the, the rubber hits the road. Right. So I think just figuring out, you know, at that higher level, um, what, what are those common values? And then what could it look like if we ground ourselves in those common values collectively mm-hmm. across, you know, People are different in the way that they want to do that. But how do we come together really grounded in the common values? And we, we, we find ways to understand our diverse skills and our areas of expertise and to put them together mm-hmm. to reach that dream. So I think that instills hope, mm-hmm. a vision for what you really want the end state to look like, a path forward and confidence that you could be successful. Right. Well, I, I like that, right? Like, it does strike me. Well, so, two things strike me. First, it strikes me as really kind of beautiful utopic thinking, right? Like, I, th- I think we dwell in dystopia too much nowadays, right? Like, it's just a, a weird cultural thing where we focus on dystopia, we think about dystopia, and we try to avoid dystopia, or just resign ourselves to dystopia, um, <laughs> right? And it's nice to hear someone say something that's actually utopic. And the other thing... I, and, yet I, yeah. and yet, I don't want it to sound like it's fluffy mm-hmm. or absolutely unattainable because I think that the, or or that it's about false hope. I think that it's about realistic hope because I I tried to define that. Like if you have a clear vision and if you have defined the path forward, because you understand where the expertise can come from and how you can work together and you've built the relationships that give you confidence that you could work together successfully, right. then yes, we can. Yeah, right. It's not, you know, it's not a pie in the sky right. sort of thing. Well, and, and so the funny thing is the second thing, the thing you just said made me think of the, I mean, it really kind of dovetails nicely to the second thing I wanted to mention, which is we've picked up this weird attitude where we equate utopia with like, right? Like weird, fluffy, uh, you know, like, uh, idealism, right? Like where we, Mm -hmm. idealism has become something that's like silly, right? Like we've become so cynical that we assume the best we can do is avoid dystopia, right? We, we, you think it's right. We, we are inclined to think 
if we're thinking utopically at all, that it's impossible. And then we need to like, we need to dial down the hope because it's going to be unrealistic. Right. The, right. Um, uh, what, what's it? What's the, I, the thing that Obama says? Uh, it's the title of one of his books. Uh, shoot. It's something about hope. The, the audacity, hope audacity of hope, the yeah, audacity yeah. of hope. Yes. The audacity of hope. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that, that phrase. You know, I, this reminds me that there is a phenomenon mm-hmm. um, that I think is called the extinction of experience, okay. which basically means that um, it's kind of like with each successive generation, the new normal is like worse and worse. Right. It's more <laughs> dystopian. And so that becomes reality because the younger generations didn't experience what the, the, the greener, more verdant, sustainable um, right world looked like. Um, and so it seems like it's something we never had, can never have again. And that's right. not to be nostalgic and unrealistic about the past or to say everything was perfect before. Absolutely not. No. But there are things that we did, you know, do better before we started, you know, polluting the world. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, there are bells we, we can't unring. That, you know? Yeah. And, and, and the oldest generations, might still remember that, but mm. the new generations don't. And so, um, so that, ex- that experience gets extinguished over time such that both reality and how far away reality feels from utopia yeah. um, makes it feel completely unrealistic and like a pipe dream. Right. And that is one of the reasons why I work hard at trying to connect people to nature because if we have successive generations that don't see the value of nature and what they're losing Mm -hmm. as they watch it become less biodiverse as they watch it become more polluted or whatever Mm -hmm. then nobody knows that it's slipping away from us and we need you know, we are going to be too far gone, you know, to try to reverse course. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I think it's very important that, that people um, be connected to nature, to understand it, to understand where we are now mm-hmm. versus what we had before and where there is hope to, you know, reverse course and move things um, into a more positive, um, a more positive future. I think that another thing to ground this as not sort of this fluffy utopian, um, pipe dream Mm -hmm. is to know ways to do this work. Mm -hmm. And I think participatory approaches are a way to build those relationships across difference, have those conversations, identify those common values, define that dream, um, understand the individual and collective skills and knowledge um, that could be, you know, put on the table. Um, that that defines a participatory approach. So I'm I think that they are part and parcel, you know, of themselves. Um, and then I think I think there's also um, th- th- there's a mantra in communicator language about an asset framing as opposed to a de- deficit framing. Right. I think that um, you know a lot of us in our personal because of our personalities or because of the way we've been trained we think about problems. We think about what's the problem to solve here. You know, as academics, we have to define the problem to get a grant. We have to define the problem we're solving in a research project or, you know, the introduction to a study. And that, that socializes us to think in terms of what's wrong with a situation, what's wrong with these people, you know, that, that kind of thing. And communicators will tell you, 
that is not <laughs> a convincing story. It's not the way to go. And it, it creates um, stereotypes. It creates, you know, false impressions and it creates incomplete knowledge. Right. So I think asset framing, which doesn't poo poo the fact that there are negative things, you know, happening. Um, it, it, it really just creates more of an understanding of the full picture that includes particularly the strengths that people bring, that communities bring, and puts into context the problems right. as probably more systemic than embedded in individuals. Right. Um, and that allows you a path forward because you've got something to work on together. You can change a system, you can change policy. Um, you, you're not going to change a zillion inter- individuals. And that's right. not where the problem resides anyway, typically. Right. Well, so all the things you said made me think of something, right? So you talked about, uh, right, thinking about assets, uh, thinking about, um, well, recognizing that, right, there's this sort of progressive uh, kind of loss of, like, uh, experience of, like, you know, Verton worlds. Uh, it makes me think of like the East coast, right? Like off, right. You know, offline, we've talked about like where we've lived in the past and where you grew up, right? Like you grew up in the, the part of Jersey that's green. And surprisingly, so for folks who aren't familiar with Jersey, and I spent a long time living in Connecticut and uh, spending a lot of time in Massachusetts. And one thing that's always struck me is, is just kind of how green that part of the world is, right? That part of the country is super wooded. It's really beautiful. And I was really surprised to learn from uh, one of my uh, postdoc supervisors way back in the day that there are very few trees that are older than 100 years old there because it had been clear cut in the past. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. like at, towards the the end of the uh, 19th century, early 20th century, there were no trees there. Those those are all planted more recently by folks who realized, wait, we don't like having a landscape that's denuded of trees. We want to have some more of those, you know, those forests that existed prior to, uh, uh, you know, uh, European colonization. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, right, like, these things are recoverable. Uh, I I think the problem is when we take it for granted that they're lost. Yeah. Despair. Yeah. That's what happens when we take for granted that something is lost. And despair paralyzes yeah we'll, we'll never get to a more verdant sustainable future if we allow ourselves to function in a place of despair yeah well because it limits what we identify as the possibility space as you talked about right and i think yeah right that i guess that is the audacity hope right like we should be more audacious about hoping um right because if we recognize that our understanding of the possibility 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 space is more constrained than the possibility space actually is right that gives us more room to be hopeful and then that gives us sort of a better sense of empowerment to actually achieve the outcomes that we want i think absolutely you you have to assume that these are open systems Mm -hmm. where you know the possibilities are are vast and you are only limited by the closedness of your thinking right um so you know, open it up, think bigger, think about, you know, the system as having possibilities as opposed to feedback loops that shut things down, you know. Um, At this point, our conversation began to wind down. So I decided to invite Kathy, as I do with all my guests on Just Sustainability, to take the reins of the conversation and introduce any topics or questions that she wanted to discuss that we hadn't touched upon yet. Kathy took this opportunity to talk about the importance of listening and how folks might practice being better listeners 
which somehow led us to talk about the IPCC Conference of the Parties meeting in Glasgow later this year. Uh, this leads us towards the end of the conversation again. And again, I like to end the conversation by allowing uh, my guest to sort of take the reins and to to lead us in directions that we could have gone, but I hadn't saw and hadn't taken us. And so were there any topics that popped up or questions that like, you know, uh, arose during our conversation that I never got to, but you think would be uh, interesting for us to talk about? Well, one of the things that I think we were going to talk about that we didn't talk about in depth, um, we just touched on it a little bit when I was was talking about partnership development, Mm -hmm. was this idea of how to be a good listener. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, and um, I think that that is a skill that, sure, some people have, you know, I guess, innately better listening skills, but it's certainly something that we can all work on and do a better job and even get trained um, at doing a better job of. And um, I, I think about what grounds good listening in these sorts of relationship building approaches, participatory approaches. And I think about a few, maybe, I don't know, four, I always give a number and then I come up with like, (laughs) Oh, let me tell you six, you know, (laughs) things. Um, instead of the four I said I was going to say, but um, I, I think there are a set of stances that allow you to exercise your listening skills. And if you really actually don't have good skills, there are ways to develop that skill. But I think the stances are things that we can all um, sort of flip into. It, it's an attitude as opposed mm-hmm. to a skill. So one of them is um, humility. And okay. we've come to call this cultural humility. Um, And I think that that's not just like racial ethnic way of thinking about um, culture, but it's Mm -hmm. also academic culture versus, you know, other sectors or community culture, Mm -hmm. um, stage of career development, you know, not assuming someone older is necessarily more knowledgeable or wise, everybody has something to learn. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you are that, that older, um, experienced, academic, being being humble in your interactions with newer faculty who have this training in participatory approaches who right. have these commitments to to community engaged careers you know that's a form of humility mm-hmm. um i think the idea of academic versus community culture is important because we overprivilege academic knowledge right. um we we often don't think about the expertise that lies within individuals and communities just because they might not have the PhD or the collective wisdom that resides in um, both geographic communities and certainly communities, you know, cultural communities. So cultural humility is, I think, the first important stance. We just really need to to take a step back and say, um, and this leads me to the second point, what can I learn here? How can I approach this in a in a co-learning way? I know I have expertise and something to offer, but so does everybody else, and so does this community. Um, how can I learn alongside um, as opposed to um, you know disseminate what I know um, or right. promote my own um, expertise? And then the third thing, I think, is 
curiosity. Um, and that should be easy for academics. We are curious people. Right. We want to know things. Uh, we want to, you know, study things and um, find the truth mm-hmm. and, you know, that kind of thing. And so kind of turning that curiosity lens onto the participatory process, onto the space of relationship building um, and really being curious about mm-hmm. other people and about um the community and about the contexts um, that the community functions in and just learning, you know, curiosity drives the learning. Um, how, you know, how can you be curious and, and learn as much as you can before you offer your own take on things? And hopefully right. you, your take on things has been informed by all of that listening and curiosity. And then the fourth thing, and I really, I think I do have four things <laughs> this time. I'm not going <laughs> to come up with like three more. Um, I think the fourth thing is empathy. Um, right. And that simply, uh, and I don't mean sympathy, I mean empathy. How right. do you simply perceive things like someone else with a different perspective might perceive them? Right. Um, that allows you, I think, to enter the co-learning space um, with curiosity right. and um and humility. Yeah. So that's what I would, would say about this listening question. No, I think that's a perfect place to end this, right? I could think that those are, I mean, right. Being better listeners is a skill that I think would benefit all scholars, right? Regardless of whether one works in CBPR or not, I think, right. If you're a person that's trying to develop knowledge, being able to listen better means that you'll develop better knowledge. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It was great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And uh, I'm sure I will invite you again in the future. Uh, Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed our conversations. I have too, Clement. And, you know, if we get to do this again next time, um, I'm thinking about the the relationship between connection to nature Mm -hmm. in childhood and sustainability um, would be an interesting thing to explore. Yeah. I mean, anytime that, uh, you want to be on the show, just let me know. And, uh, there is an open <laughs> okay. invitation for you, right? Uh, if you have, okay. if you, right, you, you have more stuff that you want to talk about and you're not sure where to talk about it. Uh, the show is always here. Well, That's hopefully, cool. hopefully, I plant, <laughs> hopefully it'll always be here. Right. Can I plant a seed? Yes. So I am going to council of parties, mm-hmm. COP 26 in Glasgow mm-hmm. in a, you know, a month. And one of my responsibilities in exchange for going on this is to communicate Mm -hmm. about what I'm hearing and learning um, in real time, but also when I get back. Um, And um, I'm thinking about the various avenues for doing that. And of course, Institute on the Environment will do social media. That they'll mm-hmm. I'll do social media. They'll promote my social media and that sort of thing. I'll be talking with Children in Nature Network about um, ways that they can do the same. Right. But maybe there's a conversation that could happen on just sustainability that well, is sparked from um, the COP26 experience. I don't know what that would look like yet because I haven't been there. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, certainly um, there's... there's What's interesting about about COP is that there is such a breadth of topics that get covered from, you know, economics to nature, mm-hmm. um, to, you know, renewable energy to, you know, you name it, that um, I'm sure I will learn a lot. And I'm interested in coming away with ideas to talk 
to people about more um, mm -hmm. that potentially could link this idea of the human connection to nature as the grounding, you know, spark that leads to um, sustainable living and holding our systems, institutions, and policymakers accountable for making our world a more sustainable place. Yeah, no, we totally can do a special. Uh, just let me know um, what your ideas are when you get back. Uh, okay. Right. So there's already plans to do some special episodes uh, around philosophy, which are going to get actually introduced in the episode after this one. Um, okay. And so uh, I would be happy to talk with you after you get back from uh the conference of the parties to think about uh, a special that you might do uh, that we can host on just sustainability. Excellent. All right. I'll keep that in mind. This brings us to the end of my conversation with Kathy Jordan and the end of this episode. On this episode, we talked about focusing on assets, the importance of hope and the skills that we need to develop to be better listeners. Next episode, I have a treat for all of you. I'll be talking with Amanda Corris, who I'm excited to introduce as a new contributor slash partner working on the Just Sustainability podcast. We'll be talking about some of our work and a new ongoing special feature that she'll be hosting on Just Sustainability. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening. Thank mm -hmm. you.